Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Derek Mason. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! That is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Derek Dyson to run the rule over the past week in the world game. News including the latest on the Socceroos with Willem van Dender and where the clock is ticking to the imminent announcement of Graham Arnold's 26-man squad. And this weekend, the Matildas face their stiffest reckoning yet in Melbourne against the world number two and reigning Olympic silver medalist Sweden, which we'd hope the Australian mentor Tony Gustafsson might know just a little bit about. But before we get there, as club football begins to wrap before the quadrennial football festival, as our first guest from the Japan Times wrote over the weekend, it was a chaotic finish to the 2022 J-League First Division season, which saw Yokohama F. Marinos crowned champions for the fifth time, but only after a final round that nearly saw last year's champions, Kawasaki Frontale, give them a scare after starting the day in second place. But it was Kevin Musket's men who came through in Saturday's final round in control of their own destiny at the start, knowing that a win would secure the Tricolor's first J1 championship since 2019, and that even a draw would be enough to keep Frontale winners of four of the last five seasons at bay, which in a thrilling afternoon they managed to do and secure the title. And for Musket to add his name as the second Australian in five years to steer the Marinos to the league. And that man who covered every minute, Dan Orlowitz from the Japan Times, will join us to go through it all. Then the English Championship has long been a favourite competition on this show with plenty of stories emerging in the first half of the season. Who'd have thought mentioning a perennial trampoline club like Burnley would elicit a blip on the radar, but just off a 16-game unbeaten streak under Manchester City title-winning gaffer Vincent Company. They're one of the hottest stories in football right now. Blackburn eyeing off a return to the top flight after a decade out. Preston North End and even the unheralded Luton Town making a run to talk us through it all. The delightful voice from the athletic Nancy Frostick. And we'll wrap it up with World Cup Corner, including the latest report on preparations from our man in Qatar, Michael Edgley. Derek, it is fair to come jam-packed. We've got competitions uh, taking a midway break, competitions ending. We've got the World Cup. We've got international women's football. Where are you going to start, my friend? Well, mate, there's only one place to start, and that's, of course, Arsenal uh, is wonderful 1-0 victory over Chelsea. You know, we keep asking ourselves about this Arsenal team, whether they uh, are the real deal. Uh, you can probably hear from my voice that I'm slowly easing myself off the fence a little bit. Uh, now that we've uh, beaten Tottenham at home, we've beaten Liverpool at home, but now we've gone and done a big away victory in against what was a pretty pretty awful looking Chelsea side plunging new depths I think there but uh yeah what a weekend a lot of the other results went our way too and even old Liverpool did us a favor as well Rob yeah they did um and uh, Willem uh, I suspect you're not going to lead with the same story as Derek did and we'll do a bit of a deeper dive into uh, into that game and that round of uh, football in the English top flight but credit where it's due and uh, hey mate enjoy it while you're, you're sitting at those uh, giddy heights at the top of the ladder but Willem, uh, where are you going to start us off, mate? I'm going to start in Japan, Rob, in a narrow victory, Derek, but uh, just the one goal on the scoreline for Arsenal, but dominant, uh, I thought it was, from pretty much go to woe. But Japan, for me to start, Yokohama F Marinos have won their second J-League title in four years, finishing two points clear of Kawasaki. The title is the fifth of Kevin Musket's managerial career, in addition to the two A-League championships, Premiership, and an FFA Cup that he won with the victory. 
Muscat last week signed a one-year extension to remain at Yokohama. Uh, and it caps a great response for Muskie, doesn't it, Rob, from getting the sack in Belgium at St. Truden after just the 13 or so games. And let's call it for what it was as well, the sack uh, at Victory Show to go away to uh, to Japan, rebuild, uh, lead them to second in his first season and now first in his second. Uh, his career is right back on track and uh, all credit to him. Yeah, look, uh, and and his own squad, as we've uh, we've discussed uh, over the course of uh, of the season, it's definitely not the hangover from the Ange Postecoglou squad. He's had to rebuild it in his own right and uh, in his own uh, name and nature. So, uh, for him to to ride that roller coaster of managerial uh, uh, experience, as any manager inevitably does over the course of a career, to dig deep. If there's one thing we know about him, he's uh, um, a resilient bloke, Muskie, um, and uh, and and to to do what he's done is. Uh, well, if he never does anything else in football off the back of his career so far, he's been successful. But you sense that uh, opportunities now that Ange Postacoglu has proven that it can be done for an Australian manager, uh, that there might be another one um, in Europe at, uh, well, let's just say a, a club of a slightly higher stature than St. Trude. Round five of the A-League men's competition has again been marred by broadcast issues. Paramount's coverage of Friday's match between the Victory and Jets was interrupted by a CBS news stream, while iPhone and Apple TV viewers were unable to view Saturday games. Saturday's matches were instead moved to 10-play and streamed on the A-League's YouTube account. Derek, uh, staggering but perhaps not surprising that we've gone backwards instead of forwards with Paramount. But uh, my interest in this story is around the sort of bigger uh, the bigger storylines that we're hearing around broadcast rights in the country. We know Paramount and 10 put their hands up uh, and made a big play and were apparently quite close for AFL rights. And the preliminary discussions are, are taking place for the next broadcast deal around the test cricket and big bash uh, and the broadcast rights there and apparently 10 and paramount are in for that as well so it seems like they've got bigger cards up their sleeve that they don't see the a-league as worthy of playing yeah they're they're far behind the major free-to-air networks just in terms of revenue so we're talking about network seven and the nine network and the big uh the big drivers of that of apart from their uh, strip entertainment series like the block and and the rest uh, are the sports and you know even today we we see that channel nine are penning a half a billion dollar deal to secure the tennis rights for uh, until 2023 so um sport brings the advertisers in and i suspect that from channel 10 and paramount's point of view they've maybe realized that if they want to play with the big boys and be the genuine um third uh, you know free to wear network in their own right that they've got to uh they've got to compete for some of these bigger tickets but you know if you were the governing bodies of some of these sports you'd look at what tenor's uh done to you know to the a-league uh in, in terms of the way it's been treated the way it's been shunted around the schedule on youtube did you just say but surely not so um yeah they've got a long they've got a they've got a long way to go you can put the dough on the table i'm not sure they have that dough but anyway uh but then you've got to create the products and unfortunately channel nine and channel seven are light years ahead in terms of the quality of the product they produce so uh we do need a we do need a third strong broadcaster here in australia i wish uh channel 10 all the best but uh they need to concentrate on just getting their existing uh, broadcasts up and running, I should say. And from an A-League perspective, specifically a year and a half into a five-year deal now, I think the uh, the faith that it could get to what we'd hoped it could and what it had basically been promised, uh, I think that has well and truly eroded by now. Overseas, Gerard Piquet has announced his retirement despite having 18 months to run on his deal, telling Barca, sometimes to love is to let go. 35-year-old Piquet rose through the Barcelona Academy, 
left for Manchester United, but since coming back in 2008, won 30 trophies from 616 games. Derek, he was also a key member of Spain's 2010 World Cup triumph. Reportedly uh, was pressured by the club to uh, retire and ease their, their wage, but we know all about that. Uh, but certainly a uh, an iconic and a legendary, one of many players uh, in great eras for both club and country around the uh, the turn of the, the 2010s. Yeah, we're going to talk about PK in the stoppage time, which uh, Alistair should tune into be released a few days after this show but uh yeah we're coming fresh off the uh the win for barcelona and this is this is his last home game so he may take part in uh the next game which is away the last game before the world cup but um the way that he's fallen now i think he's the fifth choice uh center back at, at barcelona so whether he actually pay plays there I think the home against Almira was a bit of a banker for them. I think that they could afford to have PK in their side and get the result that they needed. But leaves with um, a Premier League, uh, a La Liga, Champions League, World Cup, Euros. There aren't too many players out there, Willem, that have uh, won uh, that kind of silverware in their career. Um, joined Barca when uh, in, back in 2004, so 18 years ago. Played a little bit at Manchester United, but you know he was only going one place and back to Barcelona. And yes, there's a lot of conjecture about why he has chosen to come now. But a lot of the press are saying that he may well go away. We regroup, possibly go to the USA, but they don't think this is the last they'll see of him uh, at Barcelona in some capacity. Now, we know we've got the watch on both the Premier League and the Bundesliga this season. Arsenal do remain top uh, in England after that 1-0 win over Chelsea. Unfortunately, the dream seems to have come crashing down, Rob, uh, for Union Berlin. They've slid to third uh, in pretty dramatic circumstances after a 5-0 loss to Bayer Leverkusen. They have, however, advanced to the last 16 of the Europa League uh, and draws for the knockout stages of European competition uh, are going to be conducted shortly. Let's move on to Socceroos and Matildas Central. All eyes are on the form of those likely to be selected in Arnie's 26-man squad, which is going to be announced at 4pm on Tuesday. Uh, Rob, interested to get your thoughts on a few of these players. Riley McGree, uh, you'd suspect, will be there. He was player... Uh, of the match for Middlesbrough in their one-all draw with Bristol City. And with Tom Rogic not playing at West Brom and Aydin Rustic battling an ankle injury, uh, we might see a bit more of Riley on the pitch than we might have otherwise. Yeah, we might. Um, hopefully, um, if, if he's at his peak, then uh, you know he's as good a player as, as we've got putting the ball in the back then it is that Scorpion goal. Uh, famously described by Brenton Speed, uh, would attest. But uh, there's a great article in today's News Limited uh, papers um, Adam Peacock is is over there in Qatar uh, um, and uh, and and monitoring events out of the Aspire Academy as uh, as Graham Arnold and uh, and the rest of, of his crew, Brené Mullenstein, Tony Vidmar, and John Crawley uh, are, as they say, in the process of making uh, the, the final decisions. Uh, I hope we see Garan Qual. Um, Jason Cummings has got to be a chance. There's something about him that uh, you know, with that redemption story coming over from the UK, uh, uh, the uh, the Daniel Arzani uh, late claim as as uh, as uh uh, the article goes on to uh, to, to describe is is starting to, to maybe sputter a little bit. Uh, Marco Tilio is here, chance. Uh, uh, you know, there there are so many stories in in the uh, the selection process. So, you know, Denis Jeanreau might be one of the uh, the hard luck stories. He's not getting a, a, a lot of time on the pitch at Toulouse. Uh, um, Harry Soutar, he's he's just coming back. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, and he's going to take some chances with a couple of injured players. But how many injured players can you take to a World Cup? 
who I would have thought one, uh, two at the absolute outside, even though the squad is as big as uh, as it's ever been, 26. But with the short turnarounds, uh, uh, you know, you've got to have uh, every player uh, capable of backing up. And, uh, you know, unlike uh, Bert Van Marwick back uh, in the Russian World Cup, where he hardly gave any of the bench players a chance, uh, uh, this World Cup looks like it's going to get, uh, um, you know, squads really, uh, really worked through over the course of even just the group stages, if that's as far as they go. Yeah, I think Qual's going to get there. Another two assists on the weekend. I think Cummings will get there as well, despite spurning a pretty good opportunity against the Wanderers and admitting as much post-game. I think Arzani's probably left his run uh, a little bit late. I think Jean Rowe uh, misses out, as does Connor Metcalf, but that's okay. Those guys are just at the very start and will certainly form the basis of midfield uh, for the 2024 Asian Cup when that's played in January back in Qatar. Uh, exciting times, Rob. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's got their, uh, their sort of ghost squads and their ghost uh, 26s this time around. So, yeah, all eyes on 4 p.m. tomorrow to see uh, who Arnie selects. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll uh, reflect a little bit more on how the Matildas go against Sweden this weekend under Tony Gustafsson. Uh, the clock's ticking and uh, uh, there is not much more time for him to get that squad sorted out. Okay, stick around. Uh, after the break, we are going to uh, talk to Dan Orlitz from the Japan Times. Uh, wonderful uh, scenes over there in, in Japan in the J-League with Kevin Muscat, uh, our very own, uh, lifting the uh, the Shala uh, to uh, to take the title on a thrilling final day of uh, of that competition. We'll talk to Dan next on Box to Box. Well, I'm not going to say back by popular demand because uh, I'm sort of parking the singing of the jingle in the bench because the great jingle is in the background for Hoyt's food. We always say we love cooking and eating on this show and our friends at Hoyt's Herbs and Spices are always on hand for tips and advice on how to add flavour and taste to the kitchen and changing the mood of our food. Now, Willem, do you enjoy uh, meatballs? Do you like uh, spicy meatballs? I certainly do. Yes. What about you, Derek? Are you a meatball guy? I had. I literally had meatballs for dinner this evening, Rob. See, and I did not know that, Declare, because that's what I had too. I'm, it, and, I t- and I tell you what, there were some hoist bay leaves in the sauce. See, that's Act. exactly what I'm talking about. So you're probably talking about more of an Italian type of uh, meatball sauce. I'm mm-hmm. talking about something that is a bit more um, Indian in, in terms of its flavour. If you're trying to save some money, uh, you're not looking to buy a you know a forty dollar steak or or. Uh, chicken that might uh, break the bank in the family bank account. Minced chicken, minced turkey, lamb, beef or pork is going to make some wonderful meatballs, spicy meatballs. All you need is some curry powder, hoits cumin, hoits garam masala, paprika, fresh coriander as well to put in there, an egg, some breadcrumbs, some olive oil, mix it all up in your hands, make some lovely meatballs, about the size of a golf ball. And you know what, to make them a little healthier, you just pop them in the oven uh, with a, uh, an oven tray, sprayed lightly with some olive oil and just cook them for about 15 minutes. And then you make whatever sauce it is that you like, put them finish off, they'll be moist and absolutely delicious. Affordable, just as the Hoyt's value packs are as well. You'll be happy with Hoyt's if you cook for your family at Coles, Woolworths and all good independent supermarkets. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box, and anyone who listens to this podcast regularly will know we've been watching with great interest uh, the Yokohama F Marinos ride throughout the J-League season under Kevin Musket, famously after Ange Postacoglu set his career alight, uh, uh, winning the J-League title with that very same club. And it looked for a little while there, while uh, uh, things were going so well, that to, to lose to a couple of relegation-bound uh, sides, uh, that they might have been shooting themselves in the foot, but uh, the... Uh, 
Marinos came back just in time and in a thrilling final day of the, the J-League First Division season, uh, they lifted the trophy at the end and a man who's covered every minute of that season for the Japan Times is Dan Olowitz and we welcome him to the show. Dan, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a, a real pleasure, Dan, uh, to uh, to watch Kevin Musket's career from the days of his, uh, well, rather uh, sort of nasty reputation as a player over there in England to uh, let's, uh, rehabilitating himself as the uh, the manager in the suit uh, in the technical area with the Melbourne victory heading over to Europe. Uh, um, it looked like it was sort of flaming out a little bit there in Belgium, but uh, uh, off the, the, the trail blazed by Ange Postacoglu, who uh, who won the title with, uh, with Yokohama F. Marinos. Uh, and his own squad is probably the most uh, th- telling testament to this. Uh, not only has Kevin Musket uh, managed to, to come second in his first season, but win the title. Uh, uh, just tell us the recognition him as an individual uh, he is receiving uh, uh, within the football community over there in Japan. I think that he's getting plenty of recognition. I think everyone recognizes just how difficult it is to win this league. Uh, You look at uh, going back these last four or five seasons, if it hasn't been Yokohama, it's been Kawasaki Frontale winning four out of the last five trophies. Uh, Yokohama did it in 2019, and even that came down to the wire uh, with Ange. They needed to overcome FC Tokyo and the the, the large lead that they had built uh, before the Rugby World Cup, and, and that was a challenge. So for Yokohama to do what they've done did take a lot. Uh, they did it the hard way. Those those two losses against Jubilo Iwata and Gamba Osaka, those were tough to watch uh, in person and on TV. And there was there were some grumblings, I'll be honest. There, there was some concern that they weren't going to get over the line. But I, I think that Kevin Muscat believed in his players. They believed in him. And what they have built as a club over these last four or five years has just been so phenomenal. And, and they got it over the line and deservedly so. Club that, that was prepared to take that risk with, with Ange Postacoglu and then back it up with another Australian selection. Uh, I guess the, the question is, in Australia, we see Japan as a, a very technical and, and highly uh, evolved football nation compared to uh, uh, the Australian uh, way of playing and, and that to be honest, we, we get a sense that the, the Japanese, uh, quite rightly, um, are, are a superior football nation in far, insofar as that technical side of football. Why would a club like uh, like uh, the Marinos choose uh, a, a couple of Australian managers to uh, to, to lead uh, lead them in in the top flight uh, competition? Well, with Ange, it was the relationship that Marinos have with City Football Group, who own just about 20% of the club. Uh, He came well-recommended. And in 2018, when he came on, that was at a time when when Marinos were really struggling to figure out their identity. They they had a number of seasons in which they struggled. Uh, 2013, they came incredibly close within a win of clinching the title and they famously lost their last two games of the season. And Ange gave the team an identity. He gave the team a symbol to rally around. He turned that locker room into a family when it had been sort of fractured over the previous few seasons. And we saw even in 2018, when the results were up and down, the players still believed in what their manager was doing. And when Ange left for Celtic last season, it was very telling that Marinos came out and said, we're not just going to bring on an interim manager. We're going to hold off and 
look and and try to find someone who can continue to develop on what Ange has built. And and there's no greater testament to a, a manager, especially in the J League, than for a club to not tear everything down and start from scratch. Uh, that's very rare, even with successful managers. So I, I think that with Kevin Muscat, they were taking a bit of a risk. I, I think that doing as what he did in Australia and struggling as he did a bit in Belgium, that isn't necessarily a, a, a clean vote of confidence when it comes to Japan. I think we, we do expect a certain level of success from our managers, but he came on, brought the team to a very good second place finish last year. And throughout this season, he's just been unwavering in his confidence in, in this squad uh, throughout injuries, throughout runs of poor form, throughout some struggles. It, it was very tight down to the wire, but I think that their belief in him paid off. Dan, uh, Super Kev, as we call him when he succeeds, was such a divisive figure uh, as a player and as a manager here in Australia. And he's had his critics and there's people who are just going like, to uh, not like him no matter how much uh, success he has. Those are attitudes that have been sort of long ingrained across over 20 years now as a player in Australia and in England. Did those views follow him to Japan or has he been able to just go there and uh, and manage and be judged on his work on the touchline rather than that reputation that precedes him elsewhere around the world? I think that managers and players, no matter what their reputation is previous to coming to Japan, they do benefit uh, from the, uh, how should I describe it? From having an interpreter. That, that's fr from having a sort of a defensive line between their reputation and whatever, however their character may be and what the fans hear, what the media hears, what the player hears and, 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 and what the, what the players hear. And, and that can be a challenge. Uh, Kev has been great with the media. Uh, he's, he's always got a quote for us after the game, but uh, I think that Japan, I, I want to say it's softened him. Uh, because he's just as passionate now as he was when he came aboard. Uh, but I think that when you're in the J-League, when you're coaching in Japan, you do have to adjust to the culture. And uh, that will change you as a person in some ways. And I, I think that he's taken those changes in stride. I think he's learned to work within the system. Sometimes he'll say something critical about the officiating or video review or this or that. And those aren't things that you're necessarily supposed to say here, uh, but he takes it in stride. And I, I think that right now in Yokohama, he's just one more Australian hero. Uh, moving off uh, Kevin Yokohama and onto the Samurai Blue ahead of the World Cup, Hajime Moriyasu's named his squad uh, nice and early for Qatar. Here in Australia, there's a bit of uh, surprise around the omissions of Kyogo Furuhashi and Ryo Hatate, given we watch a fair bit of Delta now. They're certainly in our eye line. Uh, have their exclusions been a talking point in Japan, or is that seen as reasonable given the other... Uh, the depth of player that you have that maybe we're not as au fait with here in Australia? I, I think it is mostly seen as reasonable. There are certainly fans out there who would like Kyogo and uh, Reo Hatate to be called up, uh, but the issue that they have is that at midfield, uh, Japan's just so stacked in terms of quality. You have Kaoru Mitoma, Ritsu Doan, Takefusa Kubo, Daiji Kamada, Junya Ito, and someone from among those players I just named is going to start on the bench to say nothing of players like Takumi Minamino uh, and others. So it's tough for Mitoma to break into. It just wasn't his cycle. Uh, he'll definitely be in the mix for 2026. And as far as Kyogo is concerned, 
I think that he's, in a way, the more controversial omission. Uh, there are some who would like to see him be selected over, for example, Takuma Asano, who isn't quite healed from injury. He's not. We don't know how he's going to do just because he's spent so many weeks out. But if you look at the fact that Japan will need a, a attackers with pace, not just to create opportunities, but also to come back and cover on defense, especially against Germany and Spain, then Daisen Maida's selection does make a lot more sense over Kyogo Furuhashi. So it, it, it's tough, and I think we would like to see them in the squad. As Moriyasu said when he announced the squad, if he had to pick 30 players, it would have been a very difficult thing to do. And just finally, before I hand you back to Rob, this will be Japan's seventh uh, consecutive World Cup since qualifying for the first time. Three times uh, they've progressed to the last 16, but no further. Is there an expectation that those feats could be replicated or bettered, or is there a general understanding that this is a very tough group with Spain, Germany, and Costa Rica? It is a very tough group, but in that is opportunity. Japan has never really had a chance to play uh, such marquee opponents in games that actually matter. So in that sense, this is sort of the World Cup we've all been waiting for. The, the challenge is going to be, can they get out of the group? And there is a very achievable route there where you beat Costa Rica and you get a point somewhere, whether that's against Spain or against Germany. Hard. Very hard, but not impossible, especially if you look at how Japan did against Colombia in the opener of Russia 2018. And if they can get out of the group, quite frankly, with a squad this strong and this dynamic, they can go as far as they want. And you need a little bit of luck uh, going your way as well. And that luck wasn't right in Japan's way back in 2006 when Australia obviously had that uh, famous run to, to the knockout stage. Dan, it's been a real pleasure having a chat to you um, all those years since uh, Arsene Wenger blazed the trail with Nagoya Grampus uh, and set the scene for the likes of Ange Postacoglu and, and now Kevin Musket to, to, to make their uh, career high watermark uh, in, in the J-League. It's, uh, it's great to be continuing to talk about that. Uh, well, it's the, the leading uh, football competition in Asia, no doubt about that, uh, and uh, to have one of our own. If you can't be a player on the park, to be guiding uh, the fortunes of a team that wins the title off it is uh, well well maybe not even the next best thing let's call it the equal thing yeah so uh, uh, thanks for joining us mate and uh, and maybe during the World Cup we'll have a chat uh, depending on how uh, uh, Samurai Blue go absolutely would hopefully we'll have uh, something positive to talk about absolutely excellent all right we'll talk to you again soon uh, Dan Orlowitz from the Japan Times talking about the uh, all-conquering uh, Yokohama F Marinos under Kevin Musket winning the J-League title. Okay, stick around. We're going to talk to Nancy Frostick from The Athletic next. Nancy is an expert on the uh, the championship. We talked to her a few times during the Women's Euros recently. She was a wonderful guest, and uh, we're going to talk to her about the championship next on box to box Whoa. Hey, boys. Do you think it's beginning to look a little like Christmas when you go out shopping? Getting the Christmas well, party certainly is. Everywhere you go. Well, you can get your Christmas shopping done early. Well, you don't need to go and buy the duty-free when you head over to Qatar. When you can go down to Chemist Warehouse and buy your fragrances. It'll be the, uh, the Shane Moore 23 and the VB fragrance, Rob. They are flying off the shelves. Oh, they fed in Kamar in honour of the great Shane Warne in the year of his passing. That would be a great way to remember him. Uh, but, uh, Derek, the Calvin Klein Euphoria, 50 mils out of perform. That's a bit of your style, Thirty four ninety nine. That's $55 off the recommended retail price. That is a bargain. I'll be telling my wife to make that a stocking filler for me, Rob. 
Absolutely, and you could make a stocking fella for her out of the Estee Lauder Beautiful, 30 mils out of a farm, $49.99, $50 off. These are $50 and $55 off respectively. Get in there. Also, Hugo Boss number 125 mil eau de toilette, $39.99. Save $69 off the recommended retail price. If you don't get in there, you're mad. Montblanc Explorer 60 mil eau de parfum, $49.99. Save $73. Fair up the Chemist Warehouse. Great savings. They are every single day. Get in there for your Christmas store stocking filler for all your friends and your family. Give me that fitter. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box to box. Now, we often talk about the uh, English Football League, the championship. It's long been a favourite competition on this show and lots of stories emerge throughout the course of the season uh, about the contenders to uh, to fight for the top flight, those who are in the relegation battle, uh, the perennial trampoline clubs, of which Burnley is one of them. Uh, who would have thought that Burnley would even elicit a blip on the, the radar? They just seem to go up and down. But uh, after their 16-game unbeaten streak just uh, broken on the weekend, uh, mind you, the gaffer, Vincent Company, is one of the hottest stories in town. You've got Blackburn eyeing off a top flight return, Preston North End, and even the unheralded Luton Town. And a person who covers it all is a a lady who we spoke to several times during the Women's Euros recently. It's uh, Nancy Frostick from The Athletic. How are you, Nancy? Yeah, very good, thank you. Just, uh, you know, plodding along to the World Cup. Blackburn, Vincent Company, I know uh, uh, they they had that uh, pretty heavy company against the Blades on the weekend, but uh, but Vincent Company, 16 games unbeaten, uh, um, that must be really uh, raising eyebrows uh, for those of you who cover the, the championship at close quarters. Yeah, because I think, you know, um, over the years, with, with Sean Deitch having been manager there for, for so long, um, Burnley had kind of come to represent one one thing, one style of play, which was, you know, fairly physical, fairly direct. Um, and it worked well for them. And, you know, it kept them in the Premier League for a good few seasons before, um, before obviously, he, he left and, and they got relegated last year. And then in terms of ideology, what, what Vincent Company has been doing is completely different. Um, you know, a lot more about keeping possession, um, a lot more about getting the ball down and playing. And, and obviously, you know, whatever works is... Is great. So, you know, that's not a criticism of what they were doing before under Sean Dyche, but um, it's just interesting because, you know, they've moved a couple of players on, players that were Premier League standard, but there's not been um, a huge, huge overhaul, um, but the sort of ideas have been implemented really quickly. And I think they're probably ahead of schedule, actually, in terms of um, how well they're doing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see them just, obviously, yeah, Saturday wasn't wasn't great for them against Sheffield United, but it's really interesting to see how they're going on. And one of the things that, that's been synonymous with uh, with the Burnley of this current season is the fact that obviously a, a Belgian international of great repute himself, uh, uh, that company has bought uh, a lot of Belgian players over uh, uh, who, have, uh, who have pretty much hit the ground running from the get-go. You know, I suppose it's not something you, you take for granted in the championship that the players are going to be able to come. It's kind of one of those terrible, stereotypical things that people say, you know, oh, the championship's really hard, it's really physical and everything like that. But it's interesting to see how many, um, how smart the recruitment's been, actually. Players that he's managed to bring from Belgium, but also Nathan Teller on loan from Southampton's had a cracking start to the season. Um, and then eventually there's a few others that haven't been able to get um, much game time yet. Scott Twine, who they signed from MK Dons, was brilliant last season in League One. Um, he's had an injury. So 
you know, once he gets playing regularly, they look like they're going to get stronger and stronger, which is uh, interesting given how tight things are at the minute. Yeah, and as for Sheffield United, of course, uh, beat Burnley at the weekend. They're three games on the bounce. Uh, they kind of fell out of the Premier League. They fell sort of quite far in the Championship too, but the, the Paul Heckingbottom turned this team around. Are they a good bet for promotion this season? Yeah, I would. I would definitely. Um... I think given their given their squad depth and the players they have, you know, I don't think they've always been playing brilliantly. Um, but actually, you know, they're still in the mix at this point, which is which is great for them. Um and again, you know, when Chris Wilder went, I think a lot of people would have questioned whether Paul Heckingbottom was sort of the glamorous appointment or whether he was the right appointment. And actually, you know, he's just kind of got on with it, done a great job. Um, they were a bit unlucky, I think, last season, um, you know, to lose in, in the playoffs. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they're, yeah, definitely up and about um, going for automatic promotion and then they'd be strong. They're always going to be strong um, in the playoffs with kind of their their home ground at Bramall Lane and the, and the noise that the fans are able to generate there. And second place, uh, Blackburn Rovers, who, of course, were um, fairly strong last season. They were at the right end of... The table, another goal for uh, Ben Brereton Diaz. Is is he uh, one of the standout players? Would you say in the championship as it stands? And you know how difficult is it going to be for Blackburn to keep hold of him, particularly if they uh, they can't get a promotion this time round? Yeah. So this is um, this is a big one. I think in terms of sort of star players in the championship or standout players, you probably have like two categories, and one is the ones that everyone are talking about, and you know. Brereton Diaz is firmly in that category just because of the way his amazing story of getting called up for Chile and, um, you know, the attention he's got for for that, which is great and, and fully deserved because, um, you know, he had an incredible scoring record last season. And if he hadn't had an injury, I think he'd have put, pushed Alexander Mitrovic right to the line for the golden boot. But um, he's he sort of, I think, been a bit slower to get going this season, but back to it, which is good. Um and and yeah, so he's one of those that I think will naturally gather a, garner a lot of attention, and um, you know will we'll be talked about a lot in the in the transfer windows. And he'll probably, I think he will probably go this summer if if they don't get promoted. Um, I know that I think Nice were one of the teams looking at him in the summer. Just gone a couple as well of other teams in in Europe. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if if someone does come in for him. Could be a Premier League team. Um, uh, but yeah, if they don't get promoted, but it's good to see them. I went, I went to uh, to Ewood Park a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and um, they lost against Millwall. And you could see the ideas were there. Obviously, John Dal Thomason's quite an interesting appointment, and he's he's sort of new to the league in in a coaching sense there. Um, and and it just looked like they were really close to to having all the ideas there and being able to formulate kind of what they wanted to do but it was just not quite connecting and you could you could really see what they were trying to do and it seems like pretty much they've got to that because they've strung you know a, a decent set of results together and they're back up to second so they just dropped away last season if they can just hold on and sort of stay in the mix they'll um yeah they'll be interesting because you always fancy them to score and of course Blackburn beat Huddersfield Town uh, in the playoffs last season but sitting very much at the bottom of the championship this season. What's happened in West Yorkshire this season? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one because I think, you know, on the face of it, actually, the two teams that got to play our final, Huddersfield and Nottingham Forest, probably weren't 
how do I say this? They, they got there because they deserve to be there, but also they weren't the strongest teams, I don't think, that actually made it to the playoffs, um, which maybe is why you're seeing kind of both teams having the seasons that they're having for different reasons now. Um, but yeah, so Huddersfield, I mean, they've lost a couple of key players, um, Harry Toffolo and um, Lewis O'Brien, both uh, gone to, to Forest. Um, and also uh, manager Carl Scorbron, who's now uh, just been appointed at West Brom, um, which I think just disrupted them a little bit. Um, also, you know, it's it's not to be un- underestimated how much of a mental knock it probably is to lose in a in a playoff final because it's a massive occasion. You know that there's nothing quite like it, and when you've gone forty, what is it, forty seven games? I think if I'm doing my maths right, forty seven games into a season, you know, to lose it to an own goal, um, which it was a really unfortunate own goal. Um, which was uh, Levi Colwell, again, another really important player for them last season. And he's um, he was on loan from Chelsea, so he's you know moved on now. Um, so, yeah, I think they've just been, maybe just been able to kind of bounce back from that. Um, but, you know, anything can happen. There's a, there's a long way to go yet. And uh, there's a couple of teams that are sort of knocking about down there that, that might not have the kind of... Um, I don't know, established championship sort of pedigree of, of Huddersfield. I don't know if that counts for much, but maybe it does. Yeah, you mentioned uh, West Brom there as well. And they, they of course, had one of the shock results of the round winning away at QPR. And this is an interesting one, isn't it? Michael Beale, who went there, uh, was Stephen Gerrard's uh, sort of top coach at Aston Villa, but was lured to uh, to West London by QPR. And of course, Gerard is gone, having lost Beale, who uh, made his stock rise even higher, I suppose, as uh, Aston Villa's form declined. But uh, it's falling apart a little bit at QPR, isn't it? It looks like, you know, a, a great move for him to have obviously left Villa when he did. And then um, a couple of weeks ago, Wolves made him their number one target for, for their vacant uh, managerial position. And, and he turned that down. So um, it'd be interesting to see how this goes now, having made that decision. I think it was probably the right decision, actually, because, um, you know, there's a lot of things to be excited about at QPR. And again, they were one of those teams last season where they were sort of in and around um, for a large part, part of the season and then they kind of fell away towards the end. Um, and, you know, they showed some real promise um, this season. I think they're a better team than they were last season comfortably. Um, they've got, you know, some really interesting players, particularly at wing-back positions who can cause all kind of headaches. Um, and then, you know... If you manage to suppress them, good luck through the middle because we've got players like Ilias Chair, um, Willock, and, and you know Dykes and a few others that can cause you real problems. So, um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I kind of you know three, well, a draw is not a bad result, but two, two defeats and a draw in the last three, um, and it really can obviously because it's so tight this year, which is really exciting to see, can just make you drop from first to fifth in the blink of an eye. So. Um, I wouldn't write them off yet because I think that you know they're they're kind of interesting enough and they've got the right ideas to to go further and and sort of stick, stay in the mix for longer. But um, I think uh, maybe squad depth. I don't know kind of how well set they are in case they lose anyone or you know impact of players going off to the World Cup. They've actually got quite a, a couple, you know, two or three players, which is more than most going off to the World Cup. So. Uh, and looking at another team with uh, a new management injection, uh, Middlesbrough, uh, obviously uh, off the back of a, a 3-1 victory over Hull City in, the, in their last game, still 
languishing towards the bottom of the uh, championship table. But obviously, Carrick brings in a whole bunch of uh, experience from his professional career. He did have the reins briefly at Manchester United, and I think a lot of people wondered where he might pop up next. And being a man of the northeast, I don't think anyone was surprised uh, when it was Middlesbrough. Uh, is this a you know? Do you think this will be a good appointment for? Michael Carrick and what are the signs that we're seeing? Sorry, is this a good appointment for Middlesbrough? Is it a good one for Carrick as well? And uh, uh, what signs are we seeing of his influence there? Yeah, so I um, I was at his first game um, last weekend at Preston and, and it was really interesting just to see kind of, I guess, the, the positivity coming from the away end um, and how excited Middlesbrough fans kind of are by this appointment. Um, and, and he's an interesting one because... I suppose anyone who was part of that backroom team at Manchester United with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and um, and he was he was in with Jose Mourinho as well and Ralph Ranić. It's kind of uh, anyone who was in that that backroom team seems to have sort of, on behalf of Man United fans, had a bit of a question mark over them. Um, Kieran McKenna at Ipswich is another one of those where I think fans thought you know he was completely useless, and then actually he's gone to Ipswich and done a brilliant job. So. Um, Look, there's a lot of people who think really high, highly of, of Carrick in terms of, you know, his future as a coach. And I think, I mean, it's it's a big job to go into, right? He, he was linked with Lincoln as well, but I don't think that was ever seriously an option, um, you know, serious for either side. But um, it's it's a massive job to go into. The expectation will be, um, you know, obviously given the start, it might not be promotion this season, but it will be uh, in the longer term. And And kind of all the conversations seem to have been, more about building something, more about the long term with Carrick's appointment. I, you know, he knows the importance of results, but I don't think they're sort of stressing that they have to come straight away. Obviously, it's good to have got that win at the weekend. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see just because he has got a lot of, you know, personal connections to the North East. Um, he, he first played for Middlesbrough as a nine-year-old, I believe. Um, so, you know, he kind of knows, he didn't represent them um, in his senior career, but he knows what the club's about and, and he's local to the area. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see how much time they actually give him. In reality, having talked about this being a bit more of a project and we're building something and, you know, he wants to promote youth because, um, you know, that that's very admirable. admirable. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, in the championship, it can very quickly change and, you know, it, things never come quick enough for owners there. Nancy, uh, it's been great chatting to you, um, as, as it always is. Uh, um, we appreciate you giving us a, a deep dive into the championship and, and, and the, the chances of uh, the clubs that are contending to uh, either return to the top flight or uh, or get back into it uh, after many years. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch uh, real soon. Maybe uh, uh, there's not, not such as long a break between uh, now and, uh, and and the World Cup uh, uh, for, for the championship. So uh, perhaps um, in, in a month or so and, and, and see how your, your prognostications uh, uh, come to, to fruition. No, that would be great. Good to speak to you guys. Excellent. Nancy Frostick from The Athletic talking the championship. Okay, stick around. After the break, World Cup Corner on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chatting to Dan Orwitz there. Kevin Muscat, he is certainly taking all before him. Uh, and after Dan, it was uh, a wonderful conversation with Nancy Frostick from the Athletic uh, the Championship. Uh, it just never 
disappoints, does it? Willem, uh, World Cup corner time. Thank you to Tony, Elf the Wanderer on Twitter, a listener who has uh, alerted us this week to the uh, World Cup uh, organisers and FIFA's fan leader program. So 16,000 fans are going to be heading to Qatar on all expenses paid trips. Uh, they're going to feature in the opening ceremony and then they're going to hang around through the tournament uh, to spread the good word, Rob, good vibes only uh, on social media about Qatar. Uh, this is part of FIFA's broader fan leader program uh, in which attendees are asked to generate social media content and incorporate FIFA messaging uh, where possible. They've been told, we're not asking you to be a mouthpiece for Qatar, but it would obviously be inappropriate for you to disparage the country or tournament. So a bit of an interesting one here, a bit of a moral one, depending on where it falls, Derek. Uh, what are your initial sort of thoughts? Because I can understand why people might be a little bit uh, funny about it, seeing it as a bit of a whitewash. But at the same time, this certainly isn't uh, the first time a major global sporting event has sort of pulled these mechanisms. I just hope Fair Dinkum fans like you, Willem, will go and create an amazing atmosphere um, support your support your team. Uh, I don't think we need plastic fans in the stadium to help us help us to do that and support Qatar. Do you? The comment I just read out is obviously rot. Uh, we're not asking you to be a mouthpiece, but be a mouthpiece effectively. So obviously, I don't really have a great deal of time for that. But Rob, to have happy, smiling fans in sort of national garb in the opening ceremony, that's not new, is it? No, it's not. And uh, and look, as I'm, I'm listening to you and listening to, to Derek and, you know, obviously read the articles myself, I, I'm conscious to, to try and separate out some component parts of, of the commentary around this World Cup because uh, uh, there's been plenty of criticism and, uh, and we've tried to be an equal sounding board. So, uh, look, there are fans from all over the world. I mean, the unfortunate... Uh, line for FIFA, um, where, uh, you know, you, you're not encouraged to be critical is, uh, is, is a line that was destined to, uh, to land like a, a thud and it duly has so that, uh, that anyone who, who is, uh, remotely critical is going to, uh, to, to give it a whack and, you know, deservedly so. So, um, look, I'm just, I'm not, trying to deliberately sit on the fence because I feel like I've taken some strong views on various elements of this World Cup over the journey. I just wonder whether this one needs to fall into the basket. Look, before we carry on, why don't, why don't we have a bit of a listen to Edge because he's over there right in the middle of it. He's filed the report and uh, he's, he's chatting to, to one of his team and he also has a, a, a little clip that uh, um, that he did send out on, on Twitter that... Um, uh, is, uh, well, let's call it a very enthusiastic uh, response to the coming World Cup from uh, some local university students. Being joined by my colleague Aaron Zoanetti, who flew in in the last 24 hours, and we're sitting outside after breakfast having a lovely cup of coffee, an Arabic coffee, a little bit bitter for Aaron, but I think you'll get used to it over the next month or so. But the morning weather is beautiful, uh, the weather's really starting to cool down, uh, and It'll be lovely by the time fans get here. Aaron, uh, it's been a few weeks since you've been in Doha. What was the return journey like? And I, and I guess for all those people that are coming to Qatar, how did you go getting into the country with uh, using the Haya entry permit? Uh, thanks, Edge. Uh, I wouldn't say the coffee's nice. It's, uh, it's definitely not Melbourne coffee, but it's giving me a bit of a caffeine hit, which I need after a bit of jet lag. Um, the Haya process was uh, smooth in Qatar, obviously very smooth here because they know what's going on, but checking in uh, with the airline was a bit difficult because they obviously hadn't been briefed um, well enough and it was Qatar Airways, so you would have thought they were on top of it. So it was a little bit confusing, um, but we got there in the end and flew across to to Doha and uh, it was a very smooth entry because uh, you need a Haya to get into 
Qatar now. Uh, and so I was literally the only person on my plane that was coming into Doha. So I breezed through uh, immigration and uh, picked up my bag- baggage and was in my hotel within half an hour. Entry to Qatar is restricted to people that only have AA cards. We're still a two weeks ahead of the tournament. So at the moment, it's very quiet. Aaron and I, we went last night and had dinner at one of the venues that is hosting one of our pre-match events. And it was very quiet. Yeah, we were the only ones in there. So it was a very romantic dinner. Uh, we shared a nice bottle of red wine and a pizza, so it was good. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. Um, what's your thoughts on just how Qatar has prepared for this event? I mean, like myself, I've spent a lot more time here than you, but um, what are your thoughts on how Qatar's prepared for this event and are they ready? Uh, I'm not sure they are ready. Uh, you get to the airport and everything looks like it's ready. They've got a, a fantastic setup for fans overflow. Um, you get down to where the Cornish is, where it's kind of the, the road that um, abounds the bay and it's all set up and it's ready for fans. Um, but I just don't know that they know what to expect um, when the one million or so fans come through the airport and uh, basically swamp the services that are available. So um, I'm a little bit nervous that uh, there could be some congestion and uh, some waits. Um, I'm hopeful that it'll go very smoothly, but um, I guess we'll see. There's two weeks to go and whether or not they're ready, we'll see very soon. Yes, I'm seeing a couple of ominous signs. There's some uh, barrier queuing uh, being put outside of metro stations so they're obviously going to be um, restricting the flow of people into the metro for safety reasons so yes it's going to be very busy but we're excited it's the countdown's on uh, we're a little tired we've been at this project for a while now and obviously the, the few weeks before everyone departs is a very busy time for us but uh, I'm getting excited now it's just around the corner Aaron and can't wait to see the Socceroos play. Yeah absolutely I, I have to say I got here and I was feeling a bit um I guess not super excited about this World Cup, but you get here and then you see all the activations and the, um, you know, all the setup they've got, and and you just think back to the previous World Cups you've been to, and you think, well, this is going to be just as good. So, um, yeah, 32 teams, one city, million fans. What more could you want? Yeah, I saw a little video. Uh, Rashid Hussain, who's our uh, our event uh, lead on the the project, uh, sent a beautiful video of uh, some university students singing the. Uh, World Cup song and it was it was good it gave me a good feeling and um, it, this World Cup will inspire a new generation and we're just uh, now looking forward to the football starting and the fans arriving and uh, let's get the biggest show on earth underway back to you Rob Okay, well, look, uh, 
Adam, uh, Aaron, I should say, doesn't seem to be that confident listening to, to what he's saying that they're entirely ready. Uh, you know, I think if you take the view of uh, of, of one tweet of, of, a, of a group of university students as, as a, a one example, then um, it's uh, it's uh, well an enthusiastic response from one group of people. Uh, I guess it would be fair to say that there are various other responses, Derek, um, going around uh, uh, the nation of Qatar that uh, that might not be as enthusiastic. Uh, uh, where do you sit on all this, mate? Nation of Qatar and the, the World Cup organisers are making concerted attempts to, to create positivity leading into this tournament. I think they've got the right to do that. I think they've got the right to point out that there are people within the country, as Ed just pointed out, that are excited about a Middle Eastern World Cup. And I think we can all agree that the World Cup isn't the sole, you know, uh, ownership of Europe or North America or or, or anywhere else that it, it might go. It's great that we have a Middle East World Cup. So I think it's fair that you can have that. I also it's fair that people should continue to question elements of this tournament and continue to to challenge uh challenge why we're here but um you know i suppose it's a really easy way out so look i'm just looking forward to the football getting started i mean i think that's really what you know i'm sure that's what given that letter that the fifa sent out i think that's what they are looking forward to that will definitely silence some of the noise i think there were similar discussions around and concerns around russia when we were heading there about the government and the likely treatment of fans over there, uh, homosexual fans and people uh, with other uh, sort of gender identities. But um, when the tournament actually started, everyone just loved the tournament. Uh, you know, it's where Willem cut his World Cup teeth and he has fun memories. And I wouldn't want to do anything to um, anything to put a black cloud in any of those. So look, at World Cup is very close now. So... I think we've got to continue talking about it on this show, but we've also got to remember that we've got to enjoy the football too. All right, boys. Well, let's wrap it up there. Uh, the World Cup is not far away, and uh, Willem is, uh, is going to be packing the Samsonite uh, and uh, just uh, counting down the hours before he goes. Willem, um, well, we've got a, at least another show before you, you head off. Uh, I think maybe two uh, to squeeze in. Yeah, one more definitely, Rob, and then uh, and then certainly a couple while I'm there, which I'm looking forward to. It's going to be uh, yeah, yeah, a couple of episodes of Box to Box with a different flavour, but very much looking forward to it. I sure will, Derek. Uh, thank you, my friend. Thanks, Jens. Excellent. One more week of Premier League football before the World Cup. And Damien Tardio for making uh, us all sound as well as we possibly can on this show. And thank you for listening once again to Box to Box this week. Please subscribe to Box to Box, Box to Box Stoppage Time and Box to Box Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. We've got a great edition of Box to Box Offside coming up in a couple of weeks with Julie Dolan. Looking forward to that, the number one Matilda. Tweet us at Box to Box NTS and follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcast drop and we go from one end to the pitch to the other in the world game.